You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Rory Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, European companies make a call on quarterly updates, Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund opens a London branch, and how roadshows to Asia have grown in popularity. Welcome to the Ticker Podcast. It's a weekly roundup of the top stories and headlines from around the world of investor relations this week. It's Tim Heeman, Garnet Roach, and Condice de Montpetit here with me. Hello. 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 Uh, and we'll start with something weird and wonderful this week. Research carried out by the CAS Business School has shown that an index based on Scrabble has outperformed almost every capsize-based tracker over the last 50 years. Researchers at the school created an index of the 500 largest US stocks weighted by the number of points each issuer's ticker symbol would score in the popular word game. Letters are worth between 1 and 10 points, depending on how common they are, as you'll know if you've ever had a rainy caravan holiday. So uh, APL would score 6, while XOM would score 12, so Exxon would have twice the weight of an Apple stock. And the results were a $100 investment in Cass's index would be worth $14,108 today, while the market cap weighted index would have turned that money into about 7.7 grand. This roughly equates to a difference of one53 every year. The researchers argue that standard tracker funds, such as those that track the FTSE 100, are tracking stock prices inefficiently because they prioritise past performance. And in fact, the report's authors re-examined data from 2013, where they created 10 million random portfolios, evoking the old adage involving monkeys, typewriters and Shakespeare. And they called them, in fact, monkey-constructed indices. And these portfolios beat a market cap weighted approach on all but 0.12% of occasions. Cast researchers say that it's a remarkable result, and one that is statistically significant. It suggests that we can be almost 99.9% sure that the relatively poor risk-adjusted performance so the market cap strategy was due to bad design rather than due to bad luck. Meanwhile, smart beta strategies, which are increasingly used by US investors, uh, that screen stock spending on certain characteristics uh, did much better. So monkeys or Scrabble might be able to replace our entire indices system at the moment. What would you base yours on? What board game would make a good basis for an indices? Oh, I was going to pick an animal. Oh, even um, better. I was going to say rats because I was reading about gambling rats yesterday. Um, some scientists have made a casino for rats. Um, so I'm quite keen on getting some rats to for pick rats. some stocks. So yeah. rats can go home with lots of money and they come on holiday, spend all their money. They uh, they, they make jack. riskier decisions when there's bright lights and, and music, <laughs> like um, people do in casinos. So And free rat alcohol as well. well I don't know about that, but um, <laughs> happy rats, yeah. It's getting into similar territory. You know, remember we had Paul the Psychic Octopus during the World Cup who could predict the scores. You know, Paul the Psychic Stock Trader would be yeah. better. <laughs> On something more serious, though, now, Garnet. Um, and you have been looking at European companies and quarterly reporting. What is the news there? Yeah, so we've been looking um, into the question of whether it's time for European companies to drop quarterly reporting. Um, the background on this, for anyone that doesn't know, is that since November last year, European companies have had the option to stop issuing a quarterly report. And while this rolled out across the continent just a couple of months ago, in the UK, companies were given a a year's head start with the interim management statement, which was um, issued in the UK, becoming voluntary in November 2014. But despite this, the majority of companies are yet to make a call either way. So what factors might affect whether or not a company would want to continue issuing quarterly reports? Well, so there are a few issues that companies need to consider. For example, if um, a firm has a larger U.S. shareholder base, those shareholders will be likely to expect a quarterly earnings update. Um, More complicated companies, especially financial organizations, will also want to keep shareholders updated regularly. For those considering dropping these reports, it's a case of examining the environment in which a company exists and the timescale it runs to, says R.T. Single, Director of Investor Relations at National Grid, which pulled its quarterly reporting in January 2015. So if a company you know, makes this move and cuts their quarterly reporting, are they supplementing their other disclosures with 
other activities? Well, when National Grid did this, um, they introduced an IR newsletter. And Arty says that, of course, if there was a need to update the market between the half and full year results, that would be done. Catherine James, uh, head of investor relations at Diageo, which issued its last quarterly report in April 2015, agrees that it's not quite as simple as just dropping the quarterlies. Investor communications do not begin and end with a quarterly update, she says, pointing out that Diageo maintains a very full programme of updates, including five conference calls with the firm's presidents each year. She says, quote, I wouldn't suggest that any company move away from quarterly reporting if IR does not have a number of alternative routes for communicating with investors. And do both of them offer any tips for companies who might be considering this move? They do. Um, well, the, the first thing that they advise to look at is... Um, your company and the investors and analysts that follow you. If you're in a cyclical business, for example, quarterly updates could be useful. And you should also think about different types of investors, says Catherine. Smaller firms that get less face time with issuers will find quarterly updates more useful than the big institutions. And finally, think about what you're withdrawing. Catherine says, quote, if you only produce an annual report alongside the quarterlies, withdrawing the quarterlies would obviously severely cut down on the interface you have with investors. I think in the current environment, that's probably a dangerous thing to do. Yes, as both of your interviewees say, it kind of strikes me that this is going to come largely down to what your investors and analysts want and also what best suits your company and whether you already operate on an annual or a more kind of even regular cycle. Exactly. National Grid is a regulated company and so it's much easier for them to make that sort of decision. Yes, when I spoke to EDF a while back... Um, they, they said they were um, cutting down a bit on, on the quarterly reporting, but they still um, saw the value in communicating quarterly with the markets just to give a, a, an update on, on trading. Yeah, I guess I guess it's, it's giving investors what they're used to, I think is probably the key. I just actually have more contact with Arty because I am a National Grid shareholder, a very, very minor one, don't have a massive holding, but I get my £20 dividend check once a year. Very How do you feel it. about the, uh, the lack the of quarterly reports? I feel Sorry. much happier because there's less posts in my mailbox every week. But moving on, and there is a, another investor in London that some issuers may want to keep in very close contact with. Condis, tell me about Malaysia's Sovereign Wealth Fund and their new office. Um, well, yes, after Beijing, Mumbai, San Francisco and Istanbul, uh, Malaysia's Sovereign Wealth Fund has opened an office in London. And it turns out it's not uh, just anywhere in London. They've chosen the Shard, uh, the tallest building in uh, Europe for the new European branch. Not only the tallest building in Europe, but also a handy abseiling point. I've seen people, you can abseil the whole way down the Shard. Maybe that's, you know, a good way to, to meet investors. They must like tall buildings, at least, anyway. Um, aren't they based in the, is it the Petronas Tower in Kuala Lumpur? Yes, the, the Petronas Towers used to be the, um, the tallest building on Earth. Um, My word. Up until 2004, that is. I don't know which, which one is it, it is now. I think it's the Burj, uh, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai now. So Kazana, as the, the fund is called, has uh, $33 billion in assets, and only 16% of that is invested abroad. So the new venture will help them increase exposure to developed markets and uh, should provide a platform to explore new opportunities in Europe, especially in technology-enabled sectors, uh, it said in a statement. Michael Madwell, um, president of the Sovereign Wealth Fund Institute, explains that, quote, London is a natural choice for many of the SWFs because of the number of asset managers and private equity firms that are based out here, and it covers the whole EMEA region. And who will be uh, in charge of this new branch? They've hired uh, Telefonica's former managing director of global affairs and new ventures, uh, Javier Santiso, to head the new office. But what you also have to know is that Kazana has traditionally spent a lot of money on its uh, home market. And for example, in 2014, they spent uh, $1.38 billion, that's uh, $320 million uh, US dollars, to bail out the country's airline after two of its flights crashed in the same year. 
Also, Malaysia-based pensions and state funds are actually mandated by the government to invest in their home market. So they've been selling off non-core assets and putting that money back into Malaysian equities, explain uh, Maduel, who says, quote, If you look at the large holders of a lot of major stocks, it's pretty much wealthy Malaysian families or Malaysian state funds. I see. And hasn't another Malaysian fund been in the news recently? Well, indeed, uh, One Malaysia Development, uh, One MDB as it's called, has been at the center of a scandal actually since um, July last year. The Wall Street Journal revealed that $1.4 billion had gone missing, and also um, it seems an additional $700 million had landed in the personal accounts of Prime Minister Najib Razak. Oh dear. So Najib was cleared by Malaysia's anti-corruption agency, which claimed the sums were donations from the Middle East, but um, investigations from the FBI, the Attorney General of Switzerland, and the UK's Serious Fraud Office, among others, um, continue. Well, anyhow, with Kazana now in town, um, that's a new potential investors IROs can include in their targeting plans. So Reuters um, also reported on the possibility of a new Saudi Arabian fund, didn't they, this week, that apparently plans to invest directly in companies. So that could be interesting, an interesting development. Another way to bypass those evil asset managers that mm. uh, charge too much uh, fees. <laughs> Well, quite. Well, actually, funny enough, we're talking about um, investors coming to London. Some new research has shown that actually IR teams are traveling more and more to Asia, Tim. Is that right? Yes, I've been having a look at the findings of our um, Global Roadshow report, which came out at the end of last year. And it's based on a survey of 900 um, IR professionals around the world. And it found um, that Singapore and Hong Kong are growing in popularity. So in the report, we rank the top 20 most visited cities um, by IR professionals. And on a global basis, uh, Singapore had climbed two spots to number 15th, sorry, position 15th, and Hong Kong had jumped four places to 16th. So that shows that in terms of relative to other cities, uh, they're becoming more popular to visit. To flesh this, uh, this data out a bit, I spoke to Damien Maltarp, a head of IR at uh, BT Group, and he said, indeed, he'd been uh, focusing a bit more on targeting Asia on, and on uh, roadshows to Asia recently. And when I spoke to him, he'd actually just come back from a trip there. Fresh from a trip. So how do companies outside of Asia tend to approach targeting in Asia? Yes, I mean, obviously, companies based in Asia are going to these kind of cities all the time. Um, But for companies based in, for example, Europe or North America, it's a bit of a bigger decision. Um, It's a long way to go. The investors uh, take a number of visits, maybe over a couple of years before they decide to invest. And so it's really a decision about how easy is it to fit into existing travel plans? Do you have the resources and the time? Can you get management out there? And so on. Uh, Speaking to uh, Damien at BT, he said that most of the time it's an IR-only trip. That's the way that BT does it. But if management is going to be in the region for one reason or another, he'll see if he can tack on a few meetings with big institutional investors while he's there. And in the research, what other cities came out as the most popular? The the most popular cities um, were the same as when we conducted the same survey uh, 12 months previously. Uh, and that shows that the, the sort of the key financial centres for IR teams haven't changed much over the last 12 months or so. So the most popular city, the, the most visited one, is New York. And then that's followed by Boston, London, Chicago, uh, San Francisco and Frankfurt. And so those are the top six that people are visiting more than any other places. As one IRO put it, uh, who responded to our research, he said, quote, notwithstanding the specific needs of a company and certain cities that fulfill those needs at certain points, New York is the most concentrated and efficient. Yeah, that that, uh, New York seems um, pretty logical, isn't it? Yeah, I think you find the more interesting findings in the research when you go down the rankings to like, you know, who's 15th and 16th and where are they moving? But 
at the top, it's always New York, Boston, London, and that just doesn't change. It must be nice to have an investor. Maybe you've got an investor in the Cayman Islands or something. You have to travel especially to visit them. Yeah, that would be a lovely excuse, wouldn't it? <laughs> I've always thought it's nice that um, insurance companies have often are based in Bermuda um, for tax reasons. Mm. Because then you just have to go over to Bermuda once or twice a but year. What about that triangle? What about that triangle <laughs> indeed? How many IRAs have gone missing in the famous Bermuda Triangle? Sorry, I went missing in the Bermuda Triangle for six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's very clear that um, we're suffering a bit from the January blues. We're imagining our trips away to Bermuda. But if you two are dreaming of investor meetings in a more far-flung place, you can, of course, read the full findings of the Global Roadshow Report, uh, which is available on our website, on our research website. If you go to irmagazine.com forward slash research, you can find it there for free. Find out where the top locations are, where other IR teams are visiting. And just to quickly let you know that the IR Magazine Awards Canada are taking place very shortly on February the 4th this year. That is, of course, taking place in Toronto. You can find out much more information again at irmagazine.com, but forward slash events this time. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at irmagazine and find all of these episodes of the ticker podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash i magazine and of course listen to jeff cassette's podcast i magazine asks which will bring you some of the most interesting insight from research around the world of investor relations but we will be back next time have a good week guys thanks for coming along again thank you laurie goodbye Bye. bye you've been listening to the ticker podcast from ir magazine For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.